Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Last week we did a building science short, so jumping back in with having guests. And today I am excited to have uh, Bob Swinburne on. You guys have seen him on the podcast before. Um, He's another architect that I collaborate with a lot, and I love hearing about other architects' process and how they get into the field of architecture. People always ask me, like, oh, how do you become a high-performance architect? So I invited Bob to come back on and talk about some of the collaboration work that we've been working on and uh, his process and what he does kind of in rural Vermont. So thanks for joining us, Bob. Introduce yourself, tell everybody who you are. Um, Yeah, Bob Swinburne, Vermont architect, uh, bluetimecollaborative.com. And I, yeah, I've been doing this for 20 20 or so years in Vermont. I was a carpenter a bit before that. Before that, I did architecture school. Um, And before that, I was a terrible student in high school. (laughs) <laughs> and what you um, can't so it, took, it took me a while to get to architecture school because i had to flail for a while sure and what you can't see right now uh because you guys are listening to this on the podcast is that bob is also the best dad in the world and allowed his daughter to to dye his hair purple uh which is pretty exciting so covid times notwithstanding has it been challenging to work from home while your kids haven't been going to school yes <laughs> yes. Simple answer. Yeah, so my, yes. My daughter. Yeah, my daughter is ungodly bored, and she misses all her friends. And so she was. She's been playing with henna. She's been playing with hair dye. And then she looked up at me and saw my white hair, which is mostly white, prematurely, of course, um, and said, "Hey, you're pre-bleached." And you know, she caught me in a weak moment. And then I realized, oh, I don't really care about these things. So next thing you know, I have purple hair, and I'm stuck with it for a while. I, I didn't let her do my beard though. So Yeah. I think that's just a way to let your creativity out. And probably most architects have somewhat creative kids uh, because this is a field uh, of creativity. And so you actually have a really unique design process on how you get or how you talk to your clients. So some, what are some of the things that you do prior to, you know, having your clients, um, jump on board with you to do a project yeah i'm actually going through that with a few people right now the whole song and dance before a signed contract and before that commitment and it is a big commitment so i do put in the time and i'm up front i you know i tell clients you know i'm going to put in a fair amount of time communicating sending you homework to do um just getting to know you before money changes hands before we make that commitment and and i tell them you know it's built into my fees and i mean people tend to come to me fairly well pre-qualified already i don't i know a lot of other architects are dealing with half a dozen project inquiries per week or month and you know they have to respond to each one of them and sort of see if they're serious or not I tend to get a lot fewer inquiries, but they tend to be higher quality. And I think that's, that's part of reputation. That's partly where I live. It's partly my web presence because there's a lot, you know, I put a lot out there about what I do and how I do it. And I've done that over a number of years. So, so yeah, by the time somebody calls me, 
or emails me, usually they have a pretty good sense of who I am, what I do, what I can offer. And so I, I don't spend a lot of time um, on dead leads or telling people, no, we're not really a good fit or, you know, the usual, um, you want a million dollar house and you want it for $300,000. Um, you know, I think a lot of other architects have to have that talk and I have that less. Yeah. I think um, that's one of the things that I've said a lot to people is that if you start talking about what you do, so people have always asked me, like, how do I break into the field of building, you know, more high performance houses? Like, how do I separate myself out to, to doing that? And I said, you talk about that's what you do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that when you're first starting out in your own architecture practice that you don't take on other jobs to pay the bills for sure. But you talk about the jobs that you really liked that had something to do with, um, with you doing high performance or uh, building comfortable or healthy or durable homes. You know, a lot of times we get distracted by, you know, not talking about the words that are important to people and we get bogged down in the, to the technical details. But you can also find a lot of us in technical spaces where we kind of prove that we understand a lot of the building science behind it. But the best way I usually recommend to people is to is to start talking about those are the things that you care about and then people who care about those things will come to you. And so it sounds like you've really done a great job with that on your website, um, Blue Time Collaborative and Vermont Architect to uh, Vermont Simple House uh, to say like, these are the things that we care about, you know, and then you have a repeat reputation because of, of what you've built with some of the builders in your area. But you also touched on another thing, which is setting up systems. And that's one thing that seems to be repetitive in the architecture industry is like we like to recreate the wheel uh, on everything um, for some for some reason. And um, the Emith Architect, because I like to talk about books, is a great book that talks about you know why McDonald's is successful. And not saying that McDonald's is like the best food in the world, but that it has a system. You you kind of know what to expect every time. So when people reach out to you you know, you have crafted this piece that says, hey, before we start working, go to a pretty good house and read X, Y, and Z. That's what I follow. That's, you know, the design behind what I follow. Or, um, you know, what are some of the other homework assignments you give your clients? Um, well, before, before we did the Pretty Good House website and started moving that forward, I would send them to the original article and I think there were there were some articles that I sent people to that were more specifically about working with an architect. I probably have those tags somewhere. They might be through the AIA or house.com or something like that. Um, and then specific to people's projects, um, and there's often um, there's often more specific stuff that I might send them. Oh, I'm trying to think of something, but I can't really at the moment. There might have been an article that I've, I've read recently. So you sort of develop that level of conversation with people. Um, well, for instance, I was working on a, I'm not working on a project yet. I haven't signed any contract. We're still basically talking and trying to see if we want to work together. Um, I had met with this person. Um, of absolutely fantastic sites. So I got so enthusiastic that I forgot half the questions that I'm supposed to ask. So I sent an email afterwards um, to ask those questions. And 
but on the drive home i had based on my impressions of this person and how they see things how they listen to what i say how i listen to what they say what things they noticed and so forth i had i had I, I was I had a picture of a house that I had seen recently that had some of the ideas that she was talking about. So I quickly found it, looked it up, linked her to it. You know, so it's you get you, you develop this sort of repartee um, very early on. See how that's working. You know, do you send something out and don't hear anything for a week? Is it somebody who's going to want to, if you send them an email, they respond immediately and then expect you to respond immediately. So you're setting up the expectations of communication and how, because communication is, is everything in this business. And if you set up the parameters and the expectations and develop that comfort level early on, and this, you know, I'm, I'm you know, figure five to 10 hours tops um before a signed contract and that's all part of the before um you basically want to get all the information about what it's like to work with me and i want to learn all the information about how it's like to work with this client and you know by the time i have i've figured out the project in depth enough so that i, I can write a good contract and that contract will contain a lot about process as well. By the time I, I'm ready to send out that contract, I want them to be asking me to send it out. Please, please, please send this contract. I'm ready to go. So, and, and it might, sometimes I've even sent out a blank copy of a, a standard contract so that they can get a sense of what it looks like before I put the numbers and project description and specifics in it. So that's probably, not all that common in the architecture industry, but it's it's what's really worked for me. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's really common in the architecture industry either. Um, I worked for a great architect in Washington, D.C., who said, you know, an hour of your time at the very beginning so that the client can meet the architect and you can meet the client and figure out, you know, what, what are the personalities here? What are, what are the expectations, you know, especially... Um, I don't know if it's so much for you in Vermont, but here in Maine, a lot of our clients are out of state. So you have to know that you can handle getting information to them in a timely manner or however, because it's difficult to do both a design and construction project when you're you know, living out of state. And so we have those things kind of set up in a contract that says like, this is how often we meet. And this is the, you know, we, we regroup on Fridays and we do these things. And, and the client has to know that that's a, enough or good enough information for them as well. But um, the architect that I worked for uh, in the DC area said, you know, that's just time well spent because um, another person that I recorded with on the podcast, Casey Gray, if you listen to Casey's podcast said, you know, it's, it's 80% communication and personality and 20% the, the skill required. There are lots of great architects out there and um, great designers and great builders. But 80% of that is your ability to communicate with each other. And that's what makes a really successful project. And I think that's also what really makes a successful integrated design process. And so you've established a relationship with a couple of really great contractors in Vermont that you work with. And, and we actually both do this, which is um, we don't do bid work 
anymore because the contractor has so many valuable things that they bring to the table as part of a pre-construction contract where they spend time saying like, this is how we might build it. This is where we could save money. This is how we get our projects to the budget level that people, you know, want to work with. Because like you said, everybody's, it's just like Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody's eyes are bigger than their budget, right? <laughs> so, um, so I know we both think that it's really important to bring a contractor on during that design development stage to work through how are we actually going to meet the things that are, that are important to the client. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you work with some of the builders that you work with. Yeah, I am lucky uh, that I live and work in Vermont and um, there are a lot of builders operating on a very high level here. Um, and there are also a lot of art, uh, builders who I probably wouldn't like to work with who are much more um, traditional in their their process. Um, so I, I do seek out those more professional builders and they seek me out. And I, yeah, I have some local people. I have uh, uh, other builders who are spread throughout the state. Um, you know, it's a pretty nice network and I'm always looking for more, more um, people to add to it. And what I look for in a builder is a level of professionalism, an ability to communicate um, the technical knowledge is great. You know, there's some wonderful builders out there who can do fantastic work, but maybe don't have really any interest in high performance building or any interest in design. You know, they, um, and I've worked with them and it can work out fine. What I'm really looking for is the builders who are design enthusiasts and who can bring that enthusiasm to the table on day one and be part of the design process, not just part of the budgeting process and detailing. Um, that's ideal and I've been really, really lucky uh, with the people I've, I've worked with. And I've certainly, as all architects do, have um, stories that are not so good. Um, you know, I've been doing this a long time and, and yeah, there's, there's stuff that I've learned from. Um, and so, you know, in terms of business model and moving forward, I am being very, very careful about setting up each and every project um, to incorporate the things that, you know, incorporate the builder, incorporate the process and be much more proactive about the process and be, you know, in any relationship, a professional relationship you have to be the best communicator in that in the room and if somebody's better than you then you you rise to their level and you learn something and so and you so where was i going with that um so what I, you know moving forward with my career i've done the porches decks and you know draw up a set of plans for somebody that is only you know six sheets or something, send it out, they build it. I've done plenty of that and I'm really trying to move more away from that into a full um, high level of design service. And to do that, I need the builder. I need the, the mechanical subs. I need all of those people, the team approach. So you know, me moving forward, I'm trying to avoid those middle of the road projects um, where you know, more a la, carte, a, a la carte type 
projects that so many architects do. And again, I'm lucky in that I've got the, the people and the knowledge and the skills and the tools in place to do that moving forward. Um, I think that you're right there. It's so important. And um, Christoph with Positive Energy or the Building Science Podcast has said it, you know, a number of times is that a truly integrated process, um, you know, lots of people, architects, builders say they do integrated design, but if you're mechanical subcontractors and your ventilation subcontractors and, you know, everybody isn't on board during the design phase, how truly integrated is it? And, you know, we were kind of talking about that and, you know, the parts and pieces and we plan for this and we want to do that design and then, you know, something happens and they want to make a change to it. And all of a sudden, well, um, you know, we have this project that we're working on and we built everything with dimensional lumber because the client it has um, chemical sensitivities. And then the mechanical contractor wanted to put the, you know, ERV unit in the attic. And I'm like, well, we can't do that because, you know, it won't be easy to access and I don't want to punch holes through our thermal and air barrier. And then we're like, oh, well, can we change where, where that is? Can we make it a hot roof? Which in a traditional sense may have worked out okay. But in this time we couldn't do that because we couldn't change the type of insulation that we were using. You know, we couldn't go to something that would work for a hot roof because of the chemical sensitivities and so we didn't have the depth and a way to pad out the depth to you know to get what where we wanted to go and so that was one of the times where it's kind of like you you make this plan and if something changes and everybody being on board so that you don't one day just kind of end up with something that never was associated with working there and um, I'm certainly sure that we have heard from mechanical contractors how many times they've had to try to basically retrofit their systems into a structure because, you know, the architect, I'll, I'll take one for the architect team. Uh, the architects didn't, you know, plan for how they were going to run mechanical systems. Like, how are we actually going to heat or cool or ventilate this space? And so that's when you talk a la carte architecture, some of the stuff that happens is we can't just rely on the subcontractors of the contractor because they haven't been involved in the process. So maybe they don't know what is the, you know, what's the scope here? What are we trying to do? Or, you know, we have one project where every light fixture on the whole thing was labeled LED, except for we added some, some uh, recess lighting at the very end and we didn't put a label next to it. And even though the rest of the plan said LED, they put halogens in, in the small fixtures because it wasn't labeled LED. And even though LED is becoming more the norm, the standard, you know, five years ago, maybe that wasn't really the case. And so they typically would have just put halogens in and we didn't talk about it. And that was what happened. And so we showed up on the job site to do, you know, a walkthrough and said like, okay, no, that doesn't work. These need to be swapped out. And so um, communication with every level of, you know, subcontractor, contractor, mechanical contractor um, is, is really important. Or um, I'm a HERS rater. And so uh, as part of a rating, if you're doing Energy Star, Energy Star has rules about um, how far from the water heater the, the farthest fixture could be. And so if you don't 
say this is you know talk about it with your subcontractor and this is where the you know the water heater needs to go you know they may put it right next to the pressure tank which maybe isn't the best location for the hot water lines and then you know you could end up having to move something because if you were going for an energy star uh it it wouldn't pass because of a a, a simple oversight, you know, that maybe you just didn't discuss this with this one subcontractor. So I truly agree that the happiest clients, the happiest architects, the happiest subcontractors are the people who worked together and everybody understood what was the underlying importance of the entire job. And that it used to be said that architects were were masters of all trades, you know, maybe back in, in the day originally. But now, things are so complicated. I mean, mechanical equipment changes all the time that it's really good to build a team where you know that each piece, there's someone, like you said, smarter than you who has some kind of value to add to the team. Yeah. And it's, and we never get it perfect. And there's always, you know, you, you, you do sort of a postmortem on each project, ideally, you know, you and the builder and whoever, um, is more involved and you take notes and you try to move them forward into and you know so the next project is a little smoother and there will always be um, builders there'll always be subcontractors who maybe aren't quite as interested in that level of communication and i've certainly done a lot of projects with very good builders um, who tout the integrated design process and all but really when the rubber comes to meet the road, you know, they're having meetings with the, the mechanical sub that, that I'm, you know, I didn't get invited to. Maybe it was a impromptu meeting at the job site and somebody forgot to um, take notes. So it's, it's not a perfect process, but we're all learning how to make it better and better. So each project can move the needle forward. Um, and I do, because of my relationships with a bunch of builders, I do get to see a lot of drawing sets and learn about other architects' process through the eyes of the builder. And certainly there are some big name architects out there commanding big fees who are putting out some really bad drawing sets. Um, very incomplete, very not integrated, very you know, and so by the time you, what, what ends up being built has a lot of little changes. Oftentimes it's, you know, in framing or, you know, things that you don't see very much or things that you can look at and know that, oh, that's going to fail in three years when the architect is long gone. There's just so much of that out there. Um, and, you know, it gives us a bad reputation. It gives builders a bad reputation, gives architects a bad reputation. So, you know, again, just trying to move that needle further and further forward to a better and better project. And then, you know, the ideal is you finish a project and you want the builder to be so enthusiastic that they want you to be designing their next project. You want the client to be so enthusiastic that they're like, you know, put me on your reference list. Who, who you know, send everybody to me and I'll, I'll talk you up. And you, you want that process to, to happen um and i again it's the the really full services higher fees projects from my from my end of 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 things that 
result in those relationships. It's the the smaller, more a la carte. Uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't say that. <laughs> a la carte. <laughs> there we go. I did it. Um, projects where you know maybe a builder brings you in and the client says, "Oh, I just need." floor plans and maybe a section and you know so many architects operate at that level and it's it's difficult you know that's the level at which more money gets spent in the long run people are less happy it's you know a less smooth process there's more head scratching on site um yeah i, I always say people go to great expense to avoid hiring a pro there's so much truth to that. A lot of people do go to great expense to not hire a pro or that they'll, they'll pay the fees to the architect and then not keep the architect on through construction, you know, which can be, can be frustrating um, where you can learn what details went well, what details didn't go well, the process of the builder, you know, the, their communication style with, with the homeowner, you know, so that, you know, if you want to, Kind of recommend them on the next project, um, but also too that you know in the building industry the way that it is where you know homeowners can build their own homes. Uh, speaking residential, residentially speaking, you know um, homeowners can build their own homes and have done that over the years. Or you know builders don't need an architect to to build a home. And just like there are bad architects, there are also great builders out there who who might be able to handle some of that. But um, I think the key part here is education and knowing what you're getting because um, we don't talk about the life cycle costs of living in a structure or the fact that, you know, maybe you buy a brand new house and part of the reason why the real estate market says that 2,500 square foot houses or bigger are what is selling might be because you lived in it for a couple of years and you didn't really love it. So you moved on to something different. So that's what the market says is selling because people are trading them in more often because they're too expensive to heat or it's cold because it faces the wrong direction or the air quality inside the house is poor or it had some kind of um, technology that didn't work out and something failed. And so, so they trade in a, you know, a house that never really worked for them. And um, for me, it always comes back to uh, talking through you know, what the importance is. Square footage is just a number that the tax department can tax you on. Um, how do you really live in your house? How are these oriented? Um, there's one development that had such a great idea. You know, it was a development for uh, 55 and older community. And, you know, a simple adjustment to the side that the driveways were on would have meant that the living spaces all faced south and they would have had great light and everything. And instead, all the living spaces ended up on the north and people don't necessarily enjoy living there or moving from a house that has has this beautiful light and warmth and especially as you're moving into retirement ages where maybe you're home um, i mean pre-covid 19 when everybody wasn't home you know uh, that you're you're home more often and you're enjoying your home and where do you sit and read um, and those are conversations that we have with our clients because you might not need more square footage you just might need really well planned square footage and that we haven't talked about what it's going to cost you to live here long term 
um, how you're going to use the space, what your future goals are for, you know, do you, do you live in Maine and you want to go to Florida for the winter because you don't like to shovel snow? And then do you want to not worry about your house having frozen plumbing or and so many things that we don't take into account because they're not just how many bedrooms do I want and, um, you know, what color is the wall painted? Um, there are so many, yeah, some, some people can build you four walls and a roof and maybe it won't leak. And in some cases that might be the importance. Maybe you just really, really need somewhere to live and, you know, there's nothing available, but a lot of times, this is going to be the most expensive purchase that you've ever made in your lifetime. And so spending that investment to get it right the first time, you know, uh, people always kind of laugh because um, in my contract, I always cite the house because I think that's really critically important. And um, you're like, Oh, you know, well, why? And I'm like, well, you know, the orientation of the house is not something you're going to change. You're going to pick it up and move it 10 degrees to the south after you've poured a foundation. So that part is so critical to get right the first time. It's the same with the insulation package. It's really difficult to change the insulation in the future. But it's not so hard to change your countertop or your kitchen, and most people do that every 10 years uh, unless they uh, stay in their house and have a 40 year old kitchen with two burners that you can't fit a turkey into. Uh, like one of my other clients who's building a new house and said, all I want is a, is a full size oven. I'm like, well, that's easy. We can get you a full size oven. Uh, <laughs> so anything else that you want to kind of impart on the listeners here today about the design process and putting it together and the importance of, you know, putting together the right team or, thought process yeah, i mean i guess just words on design it, it, floor plans are easy um you know designing a house is you know anybody can do it but taking it to that next level if you want a house that costs almost nothing to heat and cool and take care of a house that involves very little um you know, surfaces that you don't have to paint every five or 10 years, uh, you know, a house that is so much easier to live in, easier to take care of. Um, and, I, you know, I think what I, what, I'm, what I do and what I'm really shooting towards um, for essentially the rest of my career is to move beyond all that and to create spaces that are you know hit you more on the emotional level and really are emotionally supportive um, and really involve you know you always see in magazine articles um, where the house relates to the landscape but what does that really mean or it opens out into the landscape and brings nature in all this standard magazine talk but let's go beyond that you know what is it like to on a cold winter stormy night, what's it like on a spring day when you want to throw all the, the, the windows open and listen to the birds? And can you do that? Or is your, your, is your heat engineer going to be very upset with you for turning his systems off? You know, there's just so much more, there's so many more levels that you can go into in terms of home design that I think are overlooked by so many people in thinking about a new home and overlooked by 
many architects and many builders and many engineers. And so I'm, I'm striving for that next level. Um, so I'm not sure that's related to the integrated design process, but I think well, it probably is. I mean, I can't really achieve that without full buy-in to those lofty goals from the people who are on the team. I think it is. And it, if you've ever done any commercial work and some of the best public buildings that people are in, they don't necessarily know why they like it, but the scale is correct and the proportion is correct and the light in the space is really wonderful. And maybe the view it has some relation to it. And most commercial buildings aren't built in a vacuum. You know, they have a lot of team members that make those buildings possible and coming into how complicated it is to build a really important house um, that has those those things related to how you feel in the space, you know, emotionally, physically connected to it, connected to nature. Um, I agree has become where we're going with our practice and really relies on that integrated uh, source, especially as buildings get tighter and ventilation and indoor air quality is becoming more of a thing. And, you know, we didn't talk about it much today. Um, and unfortunately we're out of time, but uh, also the carbon impact of, you know, what, what building materials go into our buildings and and people have thought about this in relation to to what they eat you know they always say shop the outside of the grocery store you know that's all the stuff that has the fewest ingredients in it and you know like fewer ingredients uh definitely it has kind of healthier uh for for your body and and even moving that the needle back even farther organic farming farming that has you know less chemicals or less antibiotics in your you know produce uh, or your meat um, and starting to think about that in terms of building is, you know, the lower number of products that we have in a building is healthier for the environment and, you know, the carbon drawdown that's going to be really important for the next 30 years, um, more so than where the building science community has been with um, has been with, you know, net zero and reducing operational energy. And so carbon and operational energy are really important as far as building science, but because those things are really important, we also get all the stuff that is great. Like what does it feel like to sit next to a window in your house during a snowstorm in Maine or Vermont? And so um, anyway, any last parting words or resources that you think that people should uh, check out or, I, you know, I'm a book person, so I like books. I talked a little bit about the E-Myth Architect. If you're an architect listening to this, that's a great book. There's probably an E-Myth contractor book or just the standard E-Myth is, is great talking about how to set up processes for your business, but um, it doesn't get into as much of the design process. So. Yeah, and I, I I read so few. I'm terrible at reading business books or architecture books. So you know, read read Grant by Ron Chernow. Uh, read, <laughs> you know, I read um, history and fiction in the evening. But um, yeah, check out prettygoodhouse.org. You know, another plug for that. Um, we have a lot of work to do with that build out of that website and that idea and where we where we want to go with it um and yeah just stay tuned yeah 
It's a great starting point for people just kind of wanting to learn a little bit more. It's going to grow and evolve. So there's always going to be more there. So I appreciate you. Case studies too. Case studies would be great. So yeah, we really need to do that next. So yeah. So thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time that you took out to talk a little bit more about your process. And as people are hearing more about you uh, and what you're, the great work that you're doing, you know, in Vermont and collaborating on projects with me here in Maine. So um, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.